0: Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Matt Lowell, the managing editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, and you are listening to episode 27 of Off the Course. This is the podcast where golf course superintendents and other turf pros talk about literally anything other than their job. My guest today is Paul Sermersheim. No hyperbole. His story, his experiences... Absolutely fantastic. Back in the 1980s and the early 1990s, Paul was climbing the industry ladder. He was working his way up to first assistant. He worked on two major tournaments at Crooked Stick, the 1991 PGA Championship, the 1993 U.S. Women's Open. And then he burned out, and he walked away. And over the next 25 years, he volunteered with the Peace Corps in Panama with the Catholic Church in Mexico. He met an incredible woman when he was in Panama. They got married. They had two wonderful daughters. He worked a variety of jobs in social services. He worked at the same community college he once attended. He was a better instructor than student, he says, although the bar was low. He even became a licensed auctioneer. And then, in 2018... He returned to golf, and he became the golf course superintendent at the same course that he started at more than 30 years earlier. This is an incredible life story. I absolutely loved talking with Paul. I did not want to hang up. hope to meet him in person someday, and I hope you get to meet him in person someday, too. Just incredible. Incredible, incredible. Before you hear anything from Paul, a quick word from the sponsor of Off The Course, and that is Aqua Aid Solutions. The mythical Excalibur might just be the most famous fictional sword, immortalized in Thurian legend, and of course, sheathed in stone. The more modern Excalibur is the new, next-generation, rapid response, soil surfactant from our friends at Aqua Aid Solutions. Their Excalibur delivers rapid infiltration and consistent dry-down, and it helps your turf achieve both consistent hydration and superior rehydration. All you need is 4 ounces for every 1,000 square feet for your initial application early in the growing season, and then an ounce and a half, maybe 2 ounces every 12 to 14 days, or 3 to 4 ounces every 28 to 30 days, and at least an eighth of an inch of water to deliver Excalibur to the soil profile. For best results, use Excalibur over a full season program, and not just when signs and symptoms of water repellency in turf grass stress start to appear and make your turf look like that mythical stone. For more information about Excalibur, check out AquaAid Solutions online at solutions.com. That's A-Q-U-A-A-I-D solutions.com. Or find them on Twitter. They tweet there at solutions for turf Solutions, the number four, turf. After the break... An hour only scratches the surface, but the life story of Paul Sermersheim. My guest again on this episode of Off the Course, Paul Sermersheim. He is the golf course superintendent at Danville Country Club in Danville, Illinois. That's about two and a half hours south of Chicagoland. A little closer to Champaign and Springfield than Chicago, but definitely Illinois. Fascinating story, and I cannot wait to hear more about it. A long and winding road between nineteen ninety three and twenty seventeen. Paul, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you. So, for folks who have not heard your story, you, at least for the last four years, seem like a pretty traditional turf pro. You've been the superintendent at Danville Country Club for just about four years again, came back in April of 2018, pretty standard job responsibilities, crew of about, I think you said 10, um... It's really between 1993 and 2018, though, that, uh, that's, that's a little different. Your story also started at Danville Country Club. Do you want to start back in the 1980s when you were young and not even 20 years old? You had your whole career ahead of you, and, and I'm guessing you seemed like you were probably looking to do a pretty traditional climb up the ladder and, and host major events and all that. But you were at, you were at Danville Country Club in, in the, uh, the mid-'80s, right?
1: I was. I started here on my 19th birthday. I was uh, in a turf management, ornamental horticulture program at the local community college. I had a really strong program. One of the requirements is to do a six-month internship. So I was fortunate enough to land an internship here. Uh, the superintendent at the time was a former past past president of. Uh, Golf Course Superintendents Association of America, so a very knowledgeable guy. Jim Brandt was his name. Um, learned a lot on my internship and then worked another four seasons out here after that.
0: So that takes you up to age 23. Again, especially for the time, pretty traditional climb. Seemed like you were going from there to assistant to superintendent to maybe even director of agronomy, right?
1: I guess that's a that's a traditional path. Um, When I left, I left here and I went to Crooked Stick in Carmel, Indiana, just north of Indy. And
0: uh, didn't get hired
1: in in a managerial position. But I, uh, because I had already had a sprayer's license, pesticide applicator license and experience,
0: I moved up pretty quick there. And like you said, you you go to a little bigger club, a little more responsibility. And again, everything seemed to be looking up for you for this climb to the point where 1991-1993 for folks who are not terribly well versed in in golf history and and had I not looked it up I wouldn't have known this Crooked Stick uh, hosted two majors in pretty quick succession it was the John Daly U.S. Open in 1991 and then the 1993 Women's U.S. Open and you worked both of those right? I did. 91 was the PGA champion. Oh, I'm sorry, PGA Championship. Yep. PGA. See, this is what I'm yeah. saying. When when, I, when <laughs> I say I'm not terribly well versed, if it's not in the archives of Sports Illustrated, I probably didn't read it. <laughs> well, 30 years ago, it's, it's hard to recall a lot of that. But yes, uh,
1: I worked at Crooked Thick in 1990, uh, which actually is even the even the whole year or so before a tournament is a lot of lot of preparation a lot of 60 70 hour weeks and then of course the year of the of the PGA Championship in 1991 that was just a lot of work and a lot of prep but a great great experience
0: you were 25 26 27 years old for those mm-hmm. two tournaments you know you're yep. young you have a lot of energy what what was it like at the time for you because the the story here is about to take off but did you know at that point that you were starting to burn out a little bit on the industry?
1: Yeah, especially when you do two majors in three years. Uh, And then of course I I did move my way up to uh, the first assistant superintendent position by 93, when we were hosting the women's U S open. And that's not a staff of 10 people. That's a staff of about 40 when you get around tournament time. Uh, And, Yeah, I would say starting to burn out, uh, hosting two majors in three years was, uh, just a lot. I, I wasn't married, which is a, it has to be a total blessing. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine how the married guys go through, uh, some of those periods, but, uh, I was single. I was in my twenties. So I had the energy and the drive and,
0: uh, I still
1: enjoyed being outside. I still enjoyed, uh, you know, I of the variety of work that's presented to you in golf course management. You know, one day you're working on irrigation, the next day you're diagnosing plant problems. Uh Always loved the science involved, but yeah, uh, too many 80 hour weeks and uh, go home and kind of watch the news and see that there's, there's actually life outside that uh, 200 acres <laughs> and there's stuff going on out in the world. And, uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful membership at Crooked Stick, but I still used to sit there and watch the news and think, My gosh, if I can almost kill myself for preparing a playing surface, uh I could
0: probably do something for somebody else somewhere in the world. Before we get into there, nineteen ninety three was I mean I was I was in elementary school. I wasn't working yet. I was about to turn ten. And uh, so I'm not completely remembering what it was like in that era, but it was not as open an era to talking about mental challenges, mental struggles, burnout, um, especially in this industry. What was the reaction when you started to realize that, you know, 80-hour weeks, and I'm sure those were low, tournament week, you might have had probably some 90, 100-hour weeks mixed in there. Um, What what was the reaction when when you started that conversation of, you know, I could use a day off here or there, or even just, I need to get away completely.
1: No, you're right. I think um, stress and mental health certainly carried a different type of stigma then. Um, And uh, I mean, my peers were, a lot of my peers maybe had just started to become a superintendent somewhere, but certainly had been assistants at a lot of places. And Looking from the outside in, they saw that as an ideal position to be at a crooked stick within the top 60, I think, at the time, in the Golf Digest rankings for whatever that's worth. Um, and then to be hosting major tournaments is sort of a what one would think is an obvious springboard to, uh,
0: you know, the next
1: level to be a superintendent at a, at a pretty nice place uh, with that sort of thing on your resume. So my friends were a little bit shocked that I was looking elsewhere and, uh, it's, yeah, the reaction was, wow. Uh, and my dad had just sort of been sort of sold on this career of golf courts management after coming over for, uh, the tournaments that we hosted and seeing, you know, kind of all the good things involved when you have 35,000 people in the gallery and bleach is everywhere. And you're, you know, you're on the front page of the sporting news and, uh, and then, you know you would think that I was leading my career at the absolute worst time, which I sort of am the poster child for bad career decisions. <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's that's kind of I mean, most people were kind of surprised that I was looking to get out of the out of the
0: golf business. Like you said, everything has really kind of reached this point two majors in a three season span. You're still in your twenties, you're a first assistant um, your, your, your dad even has come around on this. Uh, I have to imagine that had you not stepped away, you, know, you probably would have gotten a top job somewhere, maybe even before you turned 30.
1: Uh, that's, uh, I would think a real possibility. I was, uh, starting to look, and I think I would have had a lot of support from, uh, you know, people that I had worked with in the industry to to help me with that first step into the superintendent's position. So, yeah, I, I would have been ready, I think.
0: But uh, just
1: some other things happened. <laughs>
0: yeah, and we've reached that point now. I've, I've we mentioned it on the intro. We've kind of alluded to it here in the first ten minutes or so of our conversation. Rather than pursue a superintendent position, stay in. Uh, turf and agronomy, you went about as far away from that as possible. And this podcast is called Off the Course, and it deals with literally anything that is not a turf job. And, and <laughs> this is about as far off the course as you can get. In 1993, three re- months removed from the Women's U.S. Open, you sign up for the Peace Corps, and you are thousands of miles from crooked stick you are five miles from electricity and and your life just completely changed
1: absolutely did yep i uh i dug out my old and a few times in college i'd probably less than halfway filled out a peace corps application so i dug out uh dug out my old application that was half filled out and quickly realized that i needed to get a new application because it had all changed and uh Filled out my Peace Corps application and sent it away and uh, took a took a job down in southern Indiana helping to finish build a golf course for fuzzy Zeller, hmm. um, which was completely enjoyable, but everybody there knew that uh, you know if the opportunity was presented to me or when that I was most likely going to leave for the Peace Corps, which isn't immediate the application process. Wasn't long, it was a little bit cumbersome, uh, the communication back and forth. But uh, so I, I think I came home from the golf course on a February day to my apartment and saw a big stack of a big envelope that wouldn't fit into the mailbox. <laughs> and there was laying there an offer for me to go to Panama. So I opened it and I called the. I called immediately to Washington, D.C. and said, how much time do I have to decide? And they said, well, you have about 10 days to tell us whether or not this is what you want to do. And I said, I'm going to go. Because if I take 10 days, I'm probably going to make a different decision.
0: (laughs) It's easy to talk yourself out of it, I imagine.
1: I would have talked myself out of it. I was having a good time in golf course construction, but that golf course was getting ready to open, so... Things would have changed there too, um, so I said yep I'd go, and they I think it was er late may, early June is when I left for training
0: and this is nineteen ninety four spring of ninety four yep okay, so not quite three months, but still within a year of working on the ninety three uh, women's u s open just a few months from working on this fuzzy Zeller course construction, and you're off to Panama. What did you know going into training? Uh, obviously, what they had sent you and what you had read, but how much did you know about what exactly you were going to be doing over the next? It's it's a two-year commitment, right?
1: It's a three year three years. or sorry three three months training, three months of training, and then two years of service after the training. Okay, the commitment, Yep. Uh, I think our t- training group, and by far, by far, far, I was the most naive huh. in our training group about what Peace Corps does. Um, I had never left the country before. Um, most of the younger people were right out of college and they had done some, they had some sort of international experience and they, they knew right what they were getting into. And um, I was the first thing they do in training is separate you by your language level. And so I was in the lowest language-level courses, um, which was fun, <laughs> and uh, I, I probably had a little bit more scientific and technical plant and soil science background than most of the trainees, but definitely lowest uh, in language. So I spent three months actually in Costa Rica, right next door to Panama. That's where the training center was, and... Uh, it was uh, one heck of a transition. I lived with a host family that spoke no English. Went about four hours a day. We had Spanish class at the training center, and the other four hours were dedicated to health, safety. And then a lot of it was dedicated to tropical agriculture.
0: You going in, did you have any Spanish-speaking background, or were you going in completely cold to this?
1: Almost completely cold, I I'm sure that I, re- I bought these cassette tapes. That's how old we are. We're talking about cassette tapes, like Speed Spanish cassette sure. tape. And um, that's sort of when I, the recruiter's attitude changed a little bit, too, when I said I, had, I was willing to, you know, do whatever language before I left. So I had a little tiny bit amount of, a little bit of vocabulary and a few phrases, but almost no Spanish. But the language instructors are all native speakers and they never speak a word of English to you. So they get you up and running with conversational Spanish pretty quickly. And then your host family, my host family was a huge help. I wasn't the first trainee that they had housed and they were so patient with me and with my Spanish too. So I had a lot of of advantages and uh, you could get extra help anytime you wanted. Those language instructors would stay during lunch They would work with you. You could go in early to the training center, stay late, and uh, they were very willing and ready to help you with language. And at eight, I think it's six weeks or eight weeks into training, you have to pass a certain level of language or they'll send you home.
0: Oh, wow. So uh, my goal was to make it past that, and I did. Yeah. Yeah, because you get sent home at two months. It's like, well, I guess I'm going back to this, and and I could burn out again pretty quickly. Yes, (laughs) for sure. The agronomy part of it, you know, obviously there's a lot of difference in terms of soils and whatnot, but how much did almost a decade on golf courses help you out as you start working with and learning about uh, that more tropical soil and that more tropical agronomy that you wound up working on for a couple of years?
1: it It helped tremendously a um, couple of the main crops we were working with were corn and rice, and of course they're both grasses and even even suffer from the same uh disease pathogens and things uh, The soil science you know i I didn't go real far with soil science with an associate's degree, but I did uh, have an understanding of sand silt and clay and loam and Cation exchange capacity and soil textures, and um, so I was way ahead on that. And then the forestry part, I always had some weird knack of being able to identify trees. And so part of our assignment was also reforestation and forestry. So I I felt very comfortable. That that's what allowed me to focus a little bit more on the language uh, because I did have I felt like I had a strong background. And most people are pretty surprised. I think in general. If, you, if they are willing to listen or ask the questions, how technical it is to, to maintain grass and what, how far we are pushing the plant. And one of the first things that I did realize was, and, and people are kind of surprised when you tell them this, in agriculture, when you're producing a crop or food, almost every practice you're going to do is going to favor that plant or that plant's production. And so we're they're all in agriculture you're always doing something that's best for the plant. In golf course management it's not so much that way. We're always doing what's best for the playing surface, which means we're pushing the plant to the max. And so it was kind of enjoyable to do things to plants that are best for the plant.
0: It's a little different when you don't have uh members looking at every tree and every shrub and, and your, your end goal is completely different.
1: It it is a lot different.
0: Yep. So over those two years, how much did your, did your primary duties and your primary mission vary, or was it pretty much the same over those two years, 1994
1: on into 1996? So I passed training and, Sort of a misconception about Peace Corps would be that we leave as a group of Americans to go save the world. That's not how it is. Peace Corps, unless you're married or I think in most programs, they send you to a village. And and If you're in the ag forestry field, I was sent to a village uh, with no electricity, no paved roads. We had running water most of the time. And so for 18 months, I worked, I lived in a village and worked in two other villages kind of close by with farmers uh, who wanted to learn more about how to conserve their soil and crop spacing. Uh, a lot, we worked with a lot of leguminous crop cover crops to improve the soil and uh, seed selection, pretty simple techniques. So I did that for 18 months and the first couple months are a little hard because you have to assimilate to the village and and you're still, uh, still adapting to the language. But after the first couple months, I was a member of the community and it was, it was uh, fantastic. I loved working with the farmers. Um, not everybody wants your help. Um, you know, they don't not not everybody wants to try new things we always tried things on a smaller scale with the people that wanted to learn and if you can get four or five farmers to try something different uh it's considered a success we were working in a very sustainable way we weren't going into a village and giving a lot of things away we were just sharing ideas and uh you know part of the experience is doing culture eight which i did i lived in my little mud hut and participated in community activities and just became part of the community and after 18 months a position opened up called volunteer coordinator so I applied for that and got it and that was a little bit of a different experience but equally rewarding. I traveled most of the western part of the country visiting volunteers and if we had a if we had a farmer who had a lot of success with the what we were trying to introduce, we would take a, a volunteer from another village and a group of three or four farmers over to that site, so that particular farmer could tell other farmers, uh, you know, what he had success with and what he or she tried to do, and uh, why they would expand on. Uh, these certain techniques of whether it's crop spacing or the, the cover crops or intercropping with, you know, leguminous plants and that kind of thing, and that was a lot of fun. A lot of traveling. Uh, I got an extension, so I did. I did more than two years as a volunteer. I got an extension, and I did that for 18 months, traveling a lot of the country. And I had a wonderful counterpart from Panama's Ministry of Agriculture, a very dynamic. Uh, Guy that was maybe 20 years older than me, and he loved uh, the international community. We're still really good friends. Uh, so I had that opportunity to to travel and and uh, put on those little seminars as well. Um, I also was responsible for um, going into a village that wanted to solicit a volunteer and explain exactly what Peace Corps could do, and more importantly, what Peace Corps couldn't do. Uh, for their village and, and uh, had some a part in making decisions on where we placed volunteers in the future. So
0: that, that
1: 18 months as volunteer coordinator was also
0: a really, really uh, valuable experience. So you wound up with training almost four years or closer to three?
1: Well, uh, I was a volunteer for almost three years because the coordinator position is still a volunteer position. And then, actually, Peace Corps moved the training center from Costa Rica to Panama. So I stayed on and trained a couple of groups that came down and did their, their three-month training, actually, in Panama. So I was the technical trainer. I was responsible for the agriculture forestry part oh, wow. of, of, their three, of the pre-service training, which was fun. It was also fun. I had great trainees. Uh, we were introducing a new system of training called uh, community-based training, uh, so I helped identify host families. We were starting from scratch, and uh, it was a lot of work, but it was uh, actually a lot of fun also.
0: Now, in an email, uh, you wrote, for the first two years in Panama, I could not look across the mountain slopes without envisioning some interesting golf holes and while digging holes for tree planting on the mountain slopes in Panama, any time I came across a small route, I had flashbacks of hitting an irrigation wire, despite there being no electricity for five miles around. Uh, par- part of the reason that you, you said you originally went down was it was just sheer burnout, and yet you couldn't completely get away, at least mentally, from golf. Were you able to just focus on the land, or, or was golf kind of always in the in the back of your mind a little bit?
1: Oh, I think after that many years and that many hours on a golf course, I don't think you could ever get, get you could never shake it completely. Yeah, I, w- I would stand on a road and look across a piece of property and say, oh, that'd be a great par four, or, or <laughs> put a tee box here and then another tee box there. And, and uh, yeah, I don't think you could ever, Get away from that. I didn't have much contact with the sport of golf while I was in Latin America, but it—I it, 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 think it's always inside you.
0: But were you able to at least over the the years that you were away, were you able to I, I, rewire? Is kind of a weird word, but were you able to kind of refocus and and kind of work past that that burnout that you'd experienced after the the two majors and almost a decade in the industry and, and, uh, just all those challenges that you'd had before. Oh,
1: sure. I mean, uh, um, I'll always say that I learned more than I taught in my experiences in Latin America. That's not a cliche. I really did learn more than I taught, but there's a lot of satisfaction in helping someone, uh, improve the amount of food that they can put on their table or, um, you know, a lot of the soil conservation and reforestation things we were doing had such a positive environmental impact that, you know, you take a lot of satisfaction in in being at least a small part of all that. And so I think that helps kind of heal some of the burnout.
0: What were some of the other lessons that you picked up on during your years down in Latin America, uh, even beyond the uh, helping folks grow more food and plant more trees, and and help their ecology? (laughs)
1: Uh, (laughs) Well, this is just an observation, definitely not a criticism, but when you walk into the golf course, and, uh, you know, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning, and you know what time the golfers start, and you're in such a rush to get things done ahead of the first group of golfers, whether it's a tournament or everyday play, um, you know, there's a that constant sense of urgency and you know what might go wrong to throw a wrench and everything. And,
0: uh, in rural
1: Latin America, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more laid back <laughs> time, uh, time, the sense of time seems to be a lot different. You know, things definitely get done, but it doesn't seem to be such, uh, at a rushed pace, if I can put it that way. Um, and some of the other things I took away is, you know, some of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life have a sixth grade education, but as far as they've gone with their formal education, um, but they're super intelligent and they're awesome problem solvers. When you're up in the, in the mountains and you're an hour and a half walk away from the nearest hardware store, um, which also requires cash resources to get something from a hardware store. So
0: availability
1: and, uh, Availability of a product or availability to pay for a product seems pretty far away. People are so resourceful; they can walk into the to the woods and cut a vine that'll work as a as twine. Or, a, you know, every resource is precious. You would just because a nail has a bend or a crook in it doesn't mean you get rid of it. You straighten out the nail and reuse it because you don't have an unlimited source of nails. <laughs> So just, just to see how resourceful and intelligent people are, uh, that, that's a huge lesson also.
0: What did you learn that you still apply today? And we'll, we'll get into all of your post-Peace Corps career here in a few minutes, but uh, just those lessons that maybe you still carry with you on a daily or, or even weekly basis. Just not to waste things, I think, is, is a big thing when you see people that don't have a lot of resources.
1: They don't waste anything, and I think that has stuck with me. I think you learn you learn how to be efficient when you don't have all the resources right there on hand. I think those are probably two of the big ones, and to you know care about people, whether it's your newly hired minimum wage worker on the golf course or the new person on the board at the club where you work, you know think also more about the connection with people than so much the uh, the turf grass
0: those are all pretty good lessons certainly for a a superintendent or, or other turf pro or or really any uh, leader manager but really just for anybody in general I mean, those are those are pretty human lessons I think all of them
1: definitely definitely yeah they've uh, learned to put People first, and you know appreciate what you have, use the resources at hand
0: you come out of the peace Corps in late nineteen ninety seven you've been trained you've been a volunteer you've trained others before before we get to your your post peace corps uh life here, was there ever a point where you thought well maybe i'll I'll do this a little little longer, maybe I'll make this a little longer chapter of my life, or were you ready to return to civilian life?
1: Uh, I wasn't quite ready to return to civilian life. So, um, actually, in 96, I got married in Panama, and, you know, they were pushing us so much to enculturate that uh, (laughs) I enculturated and... I met my wife down there. So wow. my wife, uh, was, she's Panamanian. She was working for a development organization and happened to be working in the region where I was living as a volunteer. And so I did my obedience and the enculturation part of everything and got married.
0: <laughs> you took that, that suggestion very seriously.
1: <laughs> I did. Yes, I did. My wife's actually an agronomist. And, uh, we got along great, got married, lived down there for a whole nother year. Didn't see each other a lot because her job took her traveling on one side of the country and my job took me traveling on another side of the country. And then we, uh, both made a decision then to do what we liked in agronomy. And we found a program with the Catholic church that sent us to Mexico for two years.
0: Oh, wow. And your wife's name is what, Paul? Maria. So you and Maria, this is 1997 now that you're going to Mexico?
1: Uh, we actually had a... We came We came back to the States and had to go through an orientation up in LaGrange Park. Okay. Chicago suburb. Yeah. Uh, we had to go through a six-month orientation up in uh, a Chicago suburb before... We were sent to a to a mission site, so we lived here and we spent a lot of nineteen ninety eight here in the state
0: and then you go to mexico late ninety eight early ninety nine and that's that's two more years so now you're i mean gosh now you're probably seven years in to this brand new non golf chapter of your life i mean did you have yes. did yeah. did you have any thoughts like I'm, I'm done with golf this is this is it this is so much more rewarding
1: I had those thoughts for sure absolutely yep in in Mexico we were again in a very very remote very rural remote area working with indigenous peoples a very poor area we did have electricity and running water um, but that was a it, it was a, an experience very similar to peace Corps met ton of people in the international community. We lived with a priest from Italy and another priest from Sudan, another priest from Mexico.
0: What were the two years in Mexico like, especially compared to your time in Panama? Obviously, uh, different focus, different mission, uh, different, different. Uh, not really a hugely different part of the world, but, but different...
1: Uh, yeah, you're yeah. right, it was different
0: because um, most of the people we worked with
1: were... Indigenous people, in other words, they never mixed with the Spaniards. They they had a, a totally they they had their own language. Um, some of the villages we worked in still have the traditional dress. Wow. Um, the, the culture is very different, hard sort of hard to uh, to crack into. Uh, the community was uh, the indigenous people we worked with were called the Chinanteco, Indigenous peoples. So we had a little bit of, I mean, you could find people that spoke Spanish, but there was a whole other language involved that I never mastered. And uh, a lot more focus on corn than rice. And we also actually got into uh, the cash crop in the region where we were was coffee. Hmm. So I was no coffee expert, I can tell you that. Um, But neither were a lot of the people that were trying to grow it and sell it. And so we uh, we gathered the resources we could and um, helped them improve their coffee production.
0: What did you learn about? And and this is completely different from from corn and and Panamanian farmers. But what did you learn about Mexican coffee during those two years, especially with it trying to be kind of a revenue source? I'm sure for for driving everything else.
1: Yeah, the price the price would go down low enough. To where it wasn't even worth harvesting um, the way you treat the coffee after harvest has a lot to do with the quality and so the people were, were missing that a little bit and w- actually we we wrote a grant and and uh, and we're were awarded a grant uh, to take a group of farmers to a, a an area of about six or seven hours away that had a an organic coffee co-op. And so they they got a premium price, obviously, for their coffee because it was organic and it was higher quality. So we let those farmers tell the farmers that we took on the trip, you know, what they did and how they became successful.
0: You get to the end of this two-year stretch, and did you and Maria have any thought of staying in Mexico or, or signing up for another two-year stint somewhere else in the world or, or were you ready to kind of get back to Illinois at that point?
1: Uh, we decided to come back to Illinois. Um, our, actually, we t- our daughter was about five months old when we left for, uh, that's kind of an important part I left out. Yeah. A little bit. We had our first, child <laughs> actually, while we were still in orientation. Oh my
0: gosh. Up
1: in the Williams park. And so we, we waited for about five months for her to be a little bit older. And then we had to get some sort of a special visa, uh, in Mexico. And we waited a little bit for that. So that, that actually worked out. And, and I did, I did a three month sit as just a regular employee on a golf course at that time. But, uh, our daughter was now two and a half, and uh, our assignment was, was over with uh, the mission service, and so we decided to come back to Illinois where I had family, and uh, I I had a, an associate's degree at the time, and I wanted to work on getting a bachelor's degree also, so we came back here and, and did that, and had another daughter at
0: in the process. Your your older daughter, and we don't have to get too too deep into this if you don't want to, but you know, I, I have a five and a half year old and I'm sure she doesn't remember much from her first couple of years, probably really before she was four, but even if she didn't remember it, what an incredible first couple of years for your oldest daughter, you know, growing up in a foreign country, different climate, you know, just around all sorts of people that she wouldn't have otherwise seen, you know, and even as a baby. That had to have been just so cool for you both to see her experience that as a, as a toddler and a baby.
1: It was, and she was the star of the show yeah. wherever we went, and she, you know, opened a lot of doors for us too because we're we're coming in with a little with a child, and and uh, that opened a lot of doors for the people we were working with. And gosh, the, you know, the priests and nuns were so excited to see a baby. So, yeah, she opened a lot of doors. And she, being so young, actually spoke a lot of the indigenous language, a lot more than we did. No kidding. Because she was, she was around the kids, and they were speaking to her in the indigenous language, and she'd answer them back. And and uh, she she's in her mid-20s now, and she remembers vaguely. She vaguely remembers uh, a lot of that, or oh. a little bit of that.
0: How cool. Yeah, that's... Such a cool experience for her to have while you're, you know, you're you're doing your 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 work, but you know she's just able to be a kid and and be around that. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, she was, and then of course she was more fluent in Spanish than English when we left Mexico.
0: Not surprising. Yeah, is she bilingual now? She is. Yep. That's great. Uh, your other daughter, who was not uh, raised at least for a couple years. In Mexico, does she have the same penchant for language that the rest of you do, or, or is she uh, just a mono-language person?
1: A little less, but uh, she gets by. We we do visit Panama pretty frequently, so she has to survive down there. <laughs> <laughs> That's when she gets forced into it. So she's she's definitely a lot more comfortable speaking English, but she can get by with the Spanish.
0: So you're in a very different position now. I'm trying to do the math in my head, whether it's six years or a little bit more later. You were single. You were burned out from work on golf courses. Now you're in your mid, maybe back end of your 30s, married, two kids, completely different spot in life. And you said in your email that you wound up just going not back into golf uh, because that's what had burned you out not too long before but into social services and you did that for for quite a while I think right
1: I did I did um i I still maintained some connections to the golf world through some part-time work and then um, did some interpreting for some superintendents like on a monthly basis you know they could they could get by day-to-day stuff but once a month they'd they'd have an interpreter come in and just clarify things. So that was, I, I maintained some connection with golf through some part-time work and things, but I did. I enjoyed uh, working in social services. I worked with a youth court program for 13 years. I think one of the best jobs I've ever had and, uh, supervised a, uh, a lot of doing community service work as part of their sentence. Wow. And, uh, somehow seemed to uh, get us projects that were outdoors. I <laughs> <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> Working, uh, you know, at least in gardens and community gardens and uh, at the greenhouse at the community college in the wintertime, we would go in there and you know help them transplant things and they got to learn about plants and that was kind of cool. I did a... I actually did a... Uh, I substitute taught at the community college for a whole semester the horticulture program. And this instructor was on like long-term maternity leave, so I got to go back to the classroom where I used to sit or sleep. <laughs> and
0: uh, and teach horticulture for a semester, so that was a blast. A little better instructor than you were a student, I guess. Yeah, well, it wouldn't
1: it wouldn't have taken much to exceed eh. Uh, <laughs> what I was as a student. <laughs> but that that was a lot of fun. So I, I stayed connected to the world of horticulture uh, through those times. Loved working with the youth court. Um, it was almost always a part-time job, so I found some other things to do part-time to, to make up for it. And then uh, I had wonderful staff there and and uh, it was time for another staff person to take it over and they have and they've done a wonderful job with it and then uh i was executive director for uh, the local habitat for humanity affiliate for four years and that was fun and rewarding and I learned a lot about
0: real estate
1: and house construction and that was fun fun and rewarding and then uh the superintendent at the Danville country club was moving on and leaving here. And I guarantee you, I was not the first person they called
0: (laughs) or the second or third, probably,
1: (laughs) probably, probably not in the top 10, but they got desperate enough to uh, call me to see if I had any interest at all in getting back into golf and coming back. Here to be the superintendent, and it was an opportunity. You know, all those years on the golf course, and I was an assistant at four different courses. I was never the superintendent, and uh, the timing seemed right, and so I uh, I accepted the job. And there's no way that I would have made it through the first month without leaning on my peers. You know, in the golf course business.
0: So you've come full circle. 20, this was 25 years after you left Crooked Stick. You're back in golf full time. Again, you're almost twice the age that you were when you left. You left in your Mm -hmm. your late 20s. Here you are in your early 50s. And... I have other questions, but, but you just mentioned that you wouldn't have made it through that first month. What was it about the first month? And and who did you rely on? Was it was it calls to folks you used to know? Was it uh, Twitter or other social media? Was it what 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 did you do there?
1: I was uh, former superintendents. I worked for
0: um,
1: peers, classmates from way back in the eighties at the community college. I re- it was mostly phone calls. Guys would come out. They would come, and a guy drive 40, 40 miles one Saturday just to come see me and kind of calm me down and say everything's gonna be okay. Let's take a look at your pump house and let's do uh, let's do this and that. And uh, actually, a former subordinate came over, came that far to to uh, to help me out. And I would have never made it through the first month without those guys. There's there's emotional and technical support.
0: What was it like to see the differences in, in kind of golf course agronomy from 1993 to 2018? I mean, it, a lot of it is similar, but a lot changed uh, in those 25 years, to say the very least.
1: Yeah, a lot has changed. Um, you know, I, 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 would, I think the term IPM was, was around when I had left golf in the 90s integrated pest management it was around but um, you know maybe not practiced as it should and of course that's that's huge uh, today with all of our target specific products or just you know making sure that there's a need to apply something before we go out and apply it and in in all the years you know I always defended golf courses too because they seem to be a an inaccurate target for environmentalists pointing the finger, you know, at golf courses. And, uh, and over the years, even all the years that I didn't work on a golf course, I was defended golf courses as being, you know, not being the devil, uh, of just pouring in the pesticides and the fertilizers. We, you know, practice integrated pest management and, and it's, it's even getting sharper and sharper as we go for economic reasons and, and you know ethical reasons. So the the difference is, yeah, the difference in the product that you know the slower release nitrogen, that sort of technology that's available. I mean, I'm I'm at a club. I'm I'm in an area that suffered economically with a lot of factory closings and yeah. things. So so our our club has you know the condition or the situation at our country club really reflects the situation of the local economy. So. We don't have a sprayer with the GPS and, and those kind of things, but uh, I'm well aware of all that technology that's changed, and it's good. It's good to be more accurate, and it's good to uh, practice IPM to the fullest extent, or try to get an Audubon certification.
0: Are you working on that, or, or have you already yeah. reached that?
1: Uh, I've. We had a. We had a. The speaker come to one of our local chapter meetings and, and you know, explain the requirements, and that that would be definitely a future goal of mine, to become Audubon certified.
0: Once you made it through that first month, Paul, and you kind of settled in a little bit, you've got obviously decades of different experiences, uh, Panama, Mexico, social services, Habitat for Humanity, uh, teaching at the community college working with uh, kids who've gone through the court system, we didn't even mention that you are a licensed auctioneer, which is <laughs> something else entirely. Uh, it's a very unique skill set. How did your approach... That's how gotten me. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? I've written and hosted Bar Trivia on the side for 10 years, and while that skill set doesn't directly translate to a lot of stuff, You know, it helps out in certain areas, and I imagine being an auctioneer helps in in certain areas as well, just in terms of communication and being able to uh, handle a lot of information very quickly, uh, trying to engage people and and encourage them maybe to donate more than they'd like to donate. Uh, Yeah. You know, it's it's, it's (laughs) it's got some skills there. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, you have all these, these different experiences than you had the last time you were on a course. How did your approach to agronomy, to management, to just the, the day-in, day-out grind of the position, how did that change? How was that different uh, when you came back compared to when you left?
1: Well, I don't know if this is a answer, but uh, when you have two kids getting ready to go to college, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the economic benefits of your position are certainly appreciated and, and, uh, you know, when you're a single guy, it's easy to say, I don't need this. I can do something else. <laughs> but, uh, I, I would say that I was, uh, I didn't put as much pressure on myself, learn to make it through things and things will work out and take a little bit of pressure off. It's probably what I
0: learned. You are about as far in to this stint at Danville as you were at Crooked Stick when you kind of burned out, where are you mentally? Are you I imagine you know again, much different place in life, but I imagine you're in a, in a better place mentally, and, and you're probably not in danger of burning out on the industry a second time. Well, that's because it's March.
1: Ah, Fair (laughs) enough.
0: We're not into the season for you yet in Illinois, no.
1: Call me back August 1st. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, you know, I I suppose it's, uh, I think even my peers that have done this forever and, and even the guys at the places with all the resources needed at hand, I think, you know when you get to september october you you're you're uh you're kind of ready for winter at least you know in the midwest situation. How do you not get burnt out? I guess you know appreciate the people that you work with and you know the golfers that that drive out of two holes out of their way to come over and tell you you know things everything looks good or this looks great or i you know. I, I get a far more positive communication than I do negative. So you know that that's a big thing too when when people appreciate what you're doing and that kinda helps you keep going too, I think. And you know, still like I say, I'm reminded every day why I got out of this business, but I'm also reminded every day why what I loved about it and you know, the variety of doing something different every day the science is still very intriguing i mean we have new new pests and de- diseases on the horizon all the time and that you know the challenges of what are we going to do about those is still uh very intriguing and invigorating you know hiring getting some people on staff that might have some might have some disabilities or special you know working with them is is also rewarding there's it's still uh The good still outweighs the bad. But, you know, yeah, in the middle of July and August,
0: (laughs) I am kind of reminded of why I got out of the business. We would not be able to carve out an hour to record this podcast in July or August. No way. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. So what else else is left for you? You're in your late 50s. uh, You're back at Danville. And maybe this is it. Maybe this is the job you retire in. But are there other projects you want to work on? Are there other experiences you want? There has been for years a trend of retirees uh, going into the Peace Corps. Could you could you see yourself and Maria uh, having a second Peace Corps stint here uh, in the next? I don't know, five or ten years.
1: Oh yeah, I I could easily see that. Always thinking about you know some sort of connection between this and develop international development in the agronomy field would be you know i i think well our plan is to retire in panama and have a a small very sustainable farm but also to um, reach out to anybody who wants to learn or benefit from seeing what what we we think we can do help people help people produce more food sustainably and uh you know, I, if if I ever found the right position in the golf industry that had uh, something to do with environmental impact or something like that, I would that would also be very rewarding.
0: I feel like we could talk for hours and hours more, but I've already taken up an hour of your time on a weekday morning. Uh, there's no shortage of things to prepare on the course, I'm sure. So I'll leave you with this, Paul. It, it's been tremendous fun to talk with you, and I hope to to meet you in person at some point. But is there anything else that you want to mention, anything else you want to talk about that we didn't talk about, anything you want to plug or promote? Uh, obviously, sustainable food production, uh, I have to imagine, is pretty high on your list, and that's, uh, that's one of the most important things that you could plug or promote. But anything else?
1: I see something like... Uh... Our local chapter is trying to do more outreach to the, with the STEM program at schools, getting, getting kids, you know, having, having them come out to the golf course for a couple of hours, and then they get introduced to what we're doing, but they're also at the same time learning STEM, science, technology, math. Um, I think that could be expanded upon a lot. I think, uh, I think there's an opportunity to get the 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 kids like I used to work with that maybe made a mistake and had to go through a youth court program. Um, finding some connection to get them out on the golf course, they can learn about the integrity of the game and and what we're doing also on the on the technical side. Uh, I would I would love to see. And push myself a little bit more to to explore those type of opportunities a little bit more. And of course, it would fall in with what most people are talking about in the industry. We have to introduce the young people to the game if we want it to survive. And and uh, I always enjoy talking to people. I think even your even the guy that's maybe been golfing for thirty years, or the or the lady that's been golfing for a long time, they don't they really don't understand what we do every day. And it's always fun to even for two minutes or 20 minutes sort of you know, share share that with people that's something uh, you know your your program is, is really neat and it's been I've really enjoyed talking to you but uh, that's one thing that people outside golf really don't appreciate when you tell them you were a golf course super, in, super assistant superintendent or superintendent or you worked in golf. The most enlightened or the the most intelligent person still sits there and thinks, ah, you put a little bit of grub control down and cut grass. (laughs) They they have no idea or appreciation for what all it is that's involved in in managing a golf course and the science and the, the, the technical aspects of it. So it's kinda of hard to bounce in and
0: out of golf. Well, Paul, I enjoy talking with you tremendously. Uh if folks want to reach out, you are not hard to find. I know you're on LinkedIn, uh under your name. And uh are you on Twitter? I am not. Well, good good for you on that. People can reach you on <laughs> uh on email or, or LinkedIn and, and if I could get off Twitter I would. Good job on you.
1: Yeah, I, I well I that's, I'm sure there's very beneficial uses to all the uh, social media out there. I just don't have the time to engage sometimes.
0: <laughs> no worries there. Paul Sermersheim is the golf course superintendent at Danville Country Club in Illinois, obviously if you've made it with us through the entire podcast. He's a lot more than that. But uh Paul, this this was tremendous fun. Thanks so much. Thank you for all you're doing. My thanks again to Paul Sermersheim for sharing his story. My thanks to AquaAid Solutions for sponsoring Off the Course. And my thanks, of course, to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and Tartan Talks drop on Tuesdays, Real Turf Techs, and Wonderful Women of Golf on Thursdays. Our March issue is online now. It's packed with features about courses all along the Gulf Coast, a story about twin assistant superintendents on the same New England crew, and just lots more. Great issue. Really enjoyed putting it together. You can check it out online at www.golfcourseindustry.com magazine. Physical copies will be arriving in mailboxes any day now. You can read more industry news and notes in our fast and firm email newsletter that's delivered every Tuesday to your inbox. You can sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com right on the homepage. Golf Course Industry is produced by Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are just the best, Terry Buchan, Henry Delosier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Wharton. We have a crew of fantastic regular contributors to Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torsiello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Russ Warner handles sales. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers makes sure everything goes where it should. Christina Warner makes sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. Amanda Cafardi handles a lot of production and advertising. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody here can keep straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, Brock Andorata, and Patrick Briand are our IT team. Our president is Chris Foster. He's out for a run right now. Above all else, we could not do what we do without you. Thank you so much for listening.
1: Tractor. I'm gonna get five thousand and five. 5. I'm gonna get five five here. Now fifty two fifty. I'm gonna get fifty two fifty, and now five fifty five hundred. High five hundred here. But to get fifty five, but to get six thousand, six thousand. You're in, sir. Six thousand here. But to get 6, sixty five hundred. Sixty five. But to get seven thousand seven, and then seven and why But to get seven seven on him.